of it. Hey, last week we launched this series, What Child Is This?, where we're exploring the meaning of Jesus. And our anchor verse is really the passage that we looked at last week. It's found in Luke. It says, In the heartfelt mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who are sitting in darkness in the shadow of death. And then this is the really powerful part, to guide our feet to the way of peace. And we said last week that this child lights the path to peace. And we said that over the next three or four weeks, we were going to explore uh, peace with God, peace with others, and on Christmas Eve, peace with ourselves. Let me ask you a question. Raise your hand up nice and high. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Have you ever felt disconnected from God? Have you ever gone through a season in life where you just like felt God isn't present? Maybe there was a difficulty, a circumstance, maybe an abandonment, whatever it might be, but we've kind of all had that emptiness, that feeling. Uh, another question, raise your hand up nice and high. Have you ever felt like you're just not good enough for God? I, I, get, I feel like that a lot. I'm just not good enough, right? I can't be good enough. There's too, there's too many things out there that, that I fall into or my mind or whatever it might be, and God's so good, right? Now, don't raise your hand on this one. You can if you want to, I suppose, but have you ever felt that God's just too angry with you? God's just angry with me, right? These are all experiences that we have with God, and, and honestly, I think that they're all experiences that are grounded in a lie, and that lie is called sin, and, and let me ask you this question. When you hear that word sin, what do you think of? What do you think of when you hear the word sin? Do you think, have I cleared my browser history? Is that what you think of when you hear the word sin? Do you think of, oh my goodness, I can't believe I lied about that at work, or I can't believe I cheated on that test, or I can't believe I said that to my spouse. Do you think about like the things that you maybe do, right, that are bad? What do you think of when you think of the word sin? You know, some of us, when we think of the word sin, we've been told that sin separates us from God. We've been given this model, or maybe you heard this story, that there's a chasm, and that chasm is sin, and God's on one side and you're on the other, and what are you going to do? And some of us have been told that we deserve eternal torment because of sin, that we are so bad and God is so good that there is an eternal fire that is awaiting, and it is a just reward for our behavior. We've been told that. And some of us have been manipulated and shamed and traumatized by the word sin. So I thought on a day that we talk about giving, we should talk about sin. Let's just finish it out, right? <laughs> Let's just call it a day. And it's important that we talk about sin because I have come to believe that our understanding of sin, more than anything else, will shape our understanding of God, will shape our understanding of other people, and will shape our understanding of ourselves. Right? And so last week we talked about these three big relationships that we wanted to explore where there's a lacking of peace that there's a, a brokenness in a sense. There's a, a broken peace, a broken sense of wholeness in. We talked about peace with God, peace with others, and peace with ourselves. And so this morning, I want to look at some wisdom around this idea of sin and God and Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. I want to look at three or four verses. It should only take me about four hours today. Because it's not like we're going to tackle everything. And, and I promise you today, for many of us, I'm going to talk about sin in a way that maybe you have never heard. But I believe deeply is important that we reframe our understanding of the depth and the reality of sin, what it is, 
so that we can have a beautiful, wonderful understanding of what the Bible calls God. (laughs) And so Matthew is this book in the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, there's four books that we call Gospels. And these four books really are written with this question in mind. What child is this? (laughs) What is Jesus all about? And so Matthew is writing a story that he's been handed. He has sources that he's used and we'll call Matthew, Matthew. Most scholars agree that it's very unlikely that, that Matthew or the, even the writer of Matthew was an eyewitness to the work of Jesus, just uses too many sources. And, but that's not to take away its significance or its beauty, but we just say Matthew. So if you're kind of like a person who's like, I don't believe it, that's fine. It doesn't matter. That's a tradition that we have. Nowhere in the book does it say Matthew wrote it. But this book we call Matthew, it answers the question, what child is this and what's so good about this child? It's probably written in the late 80s or early 90s. So, you know, think a bit like maybe 50 or 60 years after the the life of Jesus. It's probably written in Syria, right? So not written in Jerusalem. A lot of times we think these texts were just written in Jerusalem like the day after Jesus was raised to life, you know. This was written in Syria, probably for a group of uh, Christian Jews that spoke Greek. Uh, There was probably an intermixing of folks in this community that had a, a, a high degree of affiliation within Judaism. They were Jewish, but they had come to follow Jesus. So at this time, there really wasn't the idea of a, a separate group of people called Christians. There were like Jews that were Christians, just like there were Jews that were Pharisees or Jews that were Sadducees. So they were a, a community that, that sought after the teachings of Jesus, that lived in accordance with the teachings of Jesus, that believed that Jesus was their Messiah. Um, interestingly enough, in the Gospel of Matthew, 90% of the Gospel of Mark is in the Gospel of Matthew. So we know that whoever wrote Matthew had the whole version of the Gospel of Mark uh, and has used 90% of it, almost word for word in the Greek, right? Just a source. And has changed it a little bit here or there uh, to fit Matthew's purpose for why he was writing it, for the community that he was writing, right? And so for Matthew, it's important to know the big story of Jesus is really analogous to the story of Moses and the Exodus. It's analogous because its it's content is similar. If you read the story of Jesus in Matthew, you have Jesus going into Egypt and coming out of Egypt, right? You have this wonderful uh, announcement of a birth and a child that say there's a lot of parallel images between Moses all throughout the book and the Exodus. It's important for Matthew because, again, Matthew is kind of a Jewish community. And what Matthew is saying is the story of Jesus is the story of a new Exodus, it's the story of a new journey of freedom for everyone, right? It's this, it's this story that's deeply grounded within ancient Israel's history and story, but it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. And Matthew's birth narrative, which is different than Luke's, which is way different than Mark's because Mark doesn't have one, and John's is like super cosmic, like trippy, Matthew's birth narrative is actually part of his whole story, the theological development that he's making, and it's actually part of a dialogue that was taking place, a discussion, so to speak, amongst followers of Jesus within the first 70 years of the church around who exactly Jesus was. There were big questions, right? And it's important for us to understand that theology is always an evolution, we're always growing in it. It's a progression. It's a process that we think and we learn and we experience and we grow and the world shifts around us. And so our understanding of God changes our understanding. So this certainly was happening, right? This theology that was developing. Like right now we see dimly, but one day we'll see fully. 
It's like it's, it's getting clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer, right? That's what happens in this idea of theology. It's a growth. And so in Matthew, when Matthew's writing, there's this big conversation that's happening around exactly what, what was going on with this Jesus. And it was this idea of Christology, right? The, the, the question, what child is this, is really a, a branch of theology called Christology, which is understanding the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus. Like, when was Jesus God? That's a big question that people have been exploring for millennia. And this was a big question in Matthew's time. When was Jesus God? When wasn't Jesus God? And there was like an adoptionist view that was a part of the early church that was like, well, there was this point in time where God adopted Jesus as God's son. And, and then it became known. And then there's another like Christology that, oh, no, no, there was an incarnation of God from the very beginning. But this is a dialogue and intention that we read, if you read carefully, within the different writings in the New Testament. It's right there, and it should give us hope that we don't have to have it all figured out, right? But there's this tension, this dialogue, like what exactly is going on? Who is Jesus? When did God kind of take over and really anoint and say, Jesus is the man, right? We see this in Romans 1, by the way. Romans chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He, he gives us a very early Christology of like exactly what was happening with the begetting of Jesus, and, and he speaks of begetting and, and this idea of God uh, and Jesus like being born, so to speak, in a kind of a metaphorical way. And, and the begetting of Jesus in this early Christology as the Son of God happened at the resurrection. So this is what Paul writes. He says, I'm talking to you about the gospel concerning his son, God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, right? So who was born in the flesh but was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness when? By resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul, which Romans is earlier than Matthew, by the way, all the letters are earlier than our gospels, that gives us this taste of like, oh, so Paul kind of had this understanding that Jesus was amazing and was doing awesome, but was revealed, was adopted, was shown to be, right, at his resurrection. Paul's really not concerned about the birth of Jesus. He never really talks about it in most of his letters, right? So, so there's this early thought that it was the begetting of Jesus happens at the resurrection. Well, then there's a shift that takes place, and the begetting, this like God, God's son talk started happening around Jesus' baptism. So Mark, which is the earliest gospel, gives us kind of a version of this. In Mark chapter 1, he says, and just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens was torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove upon him. And a voice from the heavens said what? You are my son, the beloved, with you I'm well pleased. So as it developed, the thinking, the theology, kind of it starts early on, like the power, the resurrection, that's when like the coronation happens. That's when the adoption happens. And then it's like, well, no, it was at the, it was at the baptism. And now, but, but at the baptism, we're still dealing with it metaphorically. But what Matthew and Luke do that's so fascinating is they then take the metaphor and go, oh, hold on a second. It wasn't at the baptism. It was at the birth, at the very beginning of it all. So for Matthew, Jesus is two things. And, and chapter one of Matthew is all about explaining these two things. Jesus is the son of God and the son of David at birth, at birth. How many of you, your anxiety went down? I finally got to a fill-in. Like, whoa. He is not lying. Now, I got to give you this background because it's important. We can't just jump in and read a text. You got to understand the dialogue that's happening around this time, all the questions, right? Why does one gospel have the birth one way and, and not one way? And because people are trying to figure it out. 
But Matthew and Luke, their communities have inherited a tradition that says, no, 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 it was at the birth, from the very beginning. And so the, geone- the genealogy of Matthew 1, verses like 1 through 17, that's establishing that Jesus was son of David. He gives this like lineage, right? And now this longing for a Messiah is very complex within the nation of Israel. We can't go into it. But the longing for this Messiah to be of the Davidic line is also just as complex, but it really doesn't start to emerge until kind of like a couple hundred years before Jesus. There's a, a writing called the, the Song of Solomon, the Songs of Solomon, the Psalms, excuse me, of Solomon. It's not in our Bible, but in that text, we have like the first time that it says really clearly, like this idea of the hope of the Messiah to come from David's royal line. So that over a few hundred years now, like this anticipation has set deeply into the Jewish community. So Matthew is saying, hey, Jesus fulfills this that we long for. And then the second thing that Matthew wants to do is say that Jesus is the Son of God. And the way he does that is through the angelic visit. The angelic visit establishes Jesus as Son of God. So the first part is the genealogy. This is Son of David. Now let's talk about Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And he gives this angel and has the angel appearance, which is very different than the angelic appearance in Luke. And so this is super interesting too, like this title, Son of God. Because Son of God is super complex. Because did you know that the kings of Israel were called Son of God? They were called Son of God. They were God's sons. And it was at their coronation oftentimes that this would happen. And so this title, Son of God, Messiah, Savior, like all of these things are very kind of tricky words that were not only a part of the Jewish tradition, but they were also happening in the Roman world. Caesar was Son of God, Savior of the world, all these things, right? And so all of this is about looking at this question and saying, at what point was Jesus the chosen one of God? And for Matthew and Luke, it's right at its birth. And they want to show the uniqueness of Jesus from the moment that Jesus took on flesh and walked in here. So what I want to do today is focus on a few verses that speak to that nature, that path to peace that's related to Jesus as the light, as the Son of God. Okay, so Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 21. Now we're into the text. Man, you thought that was tricky. Wait till we start talking about sin. Okay, here we go. All right, so here's what it says. Stick with me. (laughs) Now, oh my good Lord. Okay, here we go. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be pregnant from the Holy Spirit. A little shocker, right? A little shocker in the moment. Oh my goodness. Now, her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to divorce her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's just hit the pause button on that one right there, okay? Not here to talk about this virgin birth today, but we can just say, that's crazy. And we can leave it at that for today. It's wild. It's powerful. It's amazing. It's, it's Matthew doing all kinds of things and helping us understand the beauty of this child, right? And some followers of Jesus take that very literally, and some faithful followers of Jesus take it very metaphorically, and there's all kinds of research done on it, and you can do that, but we're not going to touch the third rail of the virgin birth today, okay? We're just not going to do that. I'm, I'm dancing in tight, like deep waters right now with giving and sin, all right? So we're going to leave that for a different day, all right? And here's the thing, it says, she will bear a son, and this is what I really want to focus in on. It says, 
and you were to name him Jesus, which would have been Yeshua or Joshua, which means Yahweh saves, you'll name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Can we read this together? Because this is what I want to focus on, just for a second. Like, read it out loud. If you're at home, this is crazy weird, I know. But read it out loud with me. It's on the screen. Here we go. One, two, three. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Whew. Let's just close in prayer. That's good. What does that mean? What does that even mean? So three big questions come up from this huge moment in this like annunciation story. An angel comes and says this statement, Jesus, name him Jesus, which by the way, the angel tells Mary to name the baby in Luke, tells Joseph to name the baby. So that must have been an argument at home. You know, who's going to get to name the baby? Then they realize we're going to name him the same thing. <laughs> what are we even arguing over? <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> so, but, but this is the big point, right? A lot of people think this is, the, this is the verse in Matthew. The verse in Matthew. This is what it's all about. Name him Jesus, which means God saves or Yahweh saves, because he will save his people from their sins. So three big questions come up from the naming and the explanation of the name. First question, who are his peeps? Who are his people? Who is that? Is it just Jewish people? Is it just the people of his day? Is it his family? Like, who are his people? Well, for Matthew, if you read the book of Matthew and you understand the theology of Matthew, for Matthew, his people is everyone, Jew and Gentile. The culmination of this comes kind of late in Matthew uh, where, where Jesus says to his disciples, go make disciples of all the nations, all of them, as you're going, every one of them. And we see throughout Matthew these pivotal moments where he has the, Jesus has these encounters with Gentiles outside the Jewish faith, and he's blown away by their faith. And he brings them in, and he does a healing or a miracle or whatever it might be. So for Matthew, whose community, remember, is a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, He's wanting to establish that his people is everybody. And even in the genealogy, it says that Jesus is son of David and son of Abraham. That's important because son of David deals with Jewish rights and Jewish lineage and Jewish leadership. Son of Abraham is about a covenant that God made with Abraham, according to the Jewish tradition, that was for all the peoples of the earth, right? God said to Abraham, all the peoples will be blessed by you. So for Matthew, it's everybody. The covenant was for everybody. What God was doing is for everybody. And so this is a story of an exodus for Matthew of all people from the bondage of sin. That's what this is. Now, this brings up the second question. What is sin? What is sin? No, seriously, you, like, raise your hand if you have the answer, because I don't. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so I'm going to share with you some things that I think are a healthy way of understanding sin, and this is where we're going to maybe go on a journey that, that is maybe a little different than we've thought about sin before, okay? So just stick with me. Oh, sweet Moses. Okay, here we go. First thing about sin we should know, sin is a destructive and deceiving force. Okay, the word sin, I think we can understand, is a destructive and deceiving force among us. It's more than behavior, okay? The fruit of sin is a behavior, okay? And we'll get to that in a second. But what sin actually is, the depth of this word, I believe, when we look at the full witness, when we think about it, reading it between the lines, right? It's this way of seeing or processing the world that is self-centered rather than other-centered, that's fear-based, that's exclusionary rather than... Like, it's, it's a way of seeing. It's a way of experiencing 
that, that causes us to make decisions under a cloud of deception that we think is good for us or, you know, whatever it may be, but we don't consider the effect on others, right? It's a, it's a manner in which we see. It's a motivating spirit. It's the world, right? The flesh are these other Bible words that we kind of hear about it. And what happens is it leads us in opposition to the fruit of the Spirit. So the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, all these things. And against such things, there is no law. Sin is that which produces the opposite of those fruits. So the opposite of love, hate. We don't have any of that in the world. (laughs) Right? Love, joy, sorrow, grief, sadness. It's a product of sin product of brokenness. Patience. Anybody ever been impatient? Had an impatient spirit? You've been running late? Like, what is going on? Blasting the horn, right? The the fruit is the behavior, right? And here's the thing. It's this destructive and deceptive reality that separates or breaks peace in the world. It's what's behind it all, okay? So we can't just think of sin as like the things that we do or don't do that are good or bad, right or wrong, that break a little law here or there. It's, uh, it is, it's personified in the Bible, throughout the Bible, right? And early, early on in the literature of Genesis, which is actually late literature, but early in the story, right? Sin is crouching, it says, waiting for Cain. Like it's, it's crouching there. It's like a wild animal ready to devour. Paul says, like, what, why do I don't do what I want to do? Why do I do it? Oh, it's sin at work in me. It's like all this stuff, right? And so we have, it's not that we don't have a weighty enough understanding. It's our understanding of sin is too shallow, I think, to really get to the heart of it, okay? So sin is destructive and it's deceptive in the way in which we view and see one another. Now, here's another thing. Sin is inherited and it's universal. It's inherited, it's universal. So we use the word inherited Maybe you've heard of the doctrine of original sin. Oh, I don't like that phrase. The German translates it way better, calls it inherited sin. It's original goodness if you look at the story. But this sin and this deceptive nature, it's just passed on from generation to generation. It's a universal experience. It's kind of like everybody relax. You're not necessarily responsible for it, but you got to deal with it. (laughs) It's inherited. It's an inherited experience. So think of it like this. Think of sin as this deceptive taskmaster internal reality that you've inherited like a pharaoh, right? Pharaohs come and go. When you're living in bondage, you just inherit the pharaoh that's in power, right? So think of it like that. Like we all have a pharaoh inside of our heads, and this pharaoh's voice gets internalized as we grow up. It gets internalized through socialization, through our parents, through people around us. And, and it just begins to form opinions about who we are. Are we good? Are we bad? And this pharaoh, this voice, right, the psychological word for it, I'm not a psychologist, but I think it's like the superego. Like the way psychology would talk about this is it's that critical, demanding voice that stands over us all the time and tells us we're not good enough and continues to be a taskmaster like a pharaoh. It just fills us with hard labor and malnourishment and resentment towards ourselves and towards others, right? And so if we think of sin as like this thing that we've inherited, it's been passed on to us, it's universal, we all have one, but it's also a Pharaoh that we need to be liberated from, right? So it's inherited, but it's universal. We all sit under this reality. 
I love what Richard Rohr said in a meditation he wrote on this, right? Uh, Richard Rohr is a Franciscan uh, father, and this is what he says. He says, we're all cooperative in the stupidity and the evil of human history. All of us are. We're all cooperative in it. No one can stand up and say, I didn't do anything wrong. In fact, if you didn't do anything wrong, do not give to the pieces worth the campaign. You're exempt. Right? Like, that's what he says. Like, nobody can do that. Paul says it clearly in Romans, all have sinned. So we all bear the burden of it. We all, it all it rests in us. It's just a part of who we are. He says it's a waste of God's time, of our own time, to try to prove who is worthy, more holy, and more blameless. So stop trying to be better than anybody else. Just forget it all. All that does is make us egocentric. It's a universal reality. We all bear that weight of it, but we also bear the weight of the glory of God too, which we can talk about that on a different day. That's way too hopeful for today's topics. <laughs> today's topics are a, a malnourished budget and sin, right? Like this is an awesome morning, right? No, listen, we just got to forget about that. We all do it. Now, here's the thing. So if sin is this reality, the way we see the world to taskmaster in our lives, where we tend to focus on is the real shallow surface, is the fruit of sin, and that is what wounds us. So we tend in Christendom, in church world, in organized religion, to focus on the behavior modification. Don't do this, do this. If you've done this, then go do this, and then God will be okay with it, right? And that's such a shallow way to think about sin, but it is a reality because sin bears itself out in our lives from fear, whatever it might be. And it's the actions that we do in this world that produce a woundedness, wound others and wound ourselves, okay? So we have to recognize there's a reality to sin that produces behavior that wounds, okay? But it's something much deeper. It's a lie much bigger. Now, here's where, <laughs> here's where I'm going to say something that's going to potentially affect the offering. Okay, listen. <laughs> I believe that this is in the story, that this is revealed, that this is consistent with love, that sin is a bigger problem for us to deal with than God. Mm. I believe <laughs> that sin is a bigger problem for us than for what we call God. I think sin leaves a mark on us, and I think we see this if we read carefully, and if we look in between, and we color in the lines, and we understand what's happening. Sin leaves a mark on us, and that mark is shame. That mark is regret. That mark is fear. And what happens with that mark in our lives is we pull ourselves away from, or we push away from us, others and God. Does that make sense? So something happens, you make a decision, you have a sense of, because I don't ever do anything bad, so it's easier for me to talk about you all, right? No, I make a decision, I mistreat, I say something I shouldn't to my spouse or my child, or, or I, I go to work and I, I lie about something or whatever it might be, I all of a sudden will experience, if, if my soul is in some measure of health, I'll experience a bit of shame or regret. And in that shame or regret, I will distance myself from the hurt party. And I'll distance myself from divine love. Okay, so, so I do that. I pull myself away. And I think because we see that God, we've been told God has this big problem with sin, we've been deceived about the very nature of God. 
And that's part of sin's lie. And here's why I say that. Just, just bear with me, okay? Many of us in the room listening online, watching this on demand, if you've made it through here, oh, we, we would say that Jesus is the fullness of God in the flesh. Fully God, fully human. Great mystery. Incarnation. Here's the thing. If that's true, Jesus had no problem with sinners. None whatsoever. No problem. You never see Jesus not being in the presence of sinners. I don't read one story about Jesus, biblical or extra biblical, where someone spontaneously combusted because they were in the presence of Almighty God in the flesh of Jesus. It never happens. What, is, what do you actually see happening? Jesus is called a friend of sinners. Jesus is accused of gluttony and drinking and eating with sinners. Like he's present with those that we would call sinners that we would say are far from God because of what? The fruit of their behaviors that we think are right or wrong. And so I'm convinced more than ever that the problem with sin is not God. God's perfect love. How many of y'all loved your kids through their sin? <laughs> right? Just your kids do something wrong. You know it's wrong. I mean, if you're a half-decent parent, which I'm not all the time, right? Like, what do you do? You pull them in close. You don't push them away further away. You pull them in close. And so we've been deceived about the very nature of sin, that it, that it pushes us away from God, that like God can't be around us because of our sin. But I'm convinced that the forgiveness of our sins, this idea that we have, is about our ability to believe the truth that we are worthy of God's love and presence. That forgiveness is not about us being able to enter into God's presence because God's so holy and God's so perfect and God doesn't want anything to do with sin. No, forgiveness is a, is a construct so that we can accept what is true. Because here's the other thing about Jesus, because I'm just a Jesus guy, right? Jesus goes around, people never ask for it. Jesus is like, sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. They never said, oh, forgive me, Jesus, I'm such a sinner. Nobody ever said that to Jesus. Because the whole thing is a construct. The whole thing is a lie. It's a deception to keep us away from the wholeness and the fullness and the beauty of the universe and God that is love that's present with us. But it's very real in one sense because it affects us. So the necessity of the incarnation and the image of the divine was to come and break the lie and the power that sin has that isn't actually real, but it's felt as a very real presence. We hold deeply in our personhood the shame and guilt of the things that we do, that we know harm people, and we don't have a way to deal with it. And so we transmit it, right? And we separate ourselves from one another and from God, or we allow Jesus to transform it. And the transformation and the power <laughs> comes, right, through this Jesus. Right? And, and if that's what Jesus does, if Jesus transforms the way we see and understand ourselves and God and breaks down some of these really terrible understandings of sin that just produce an idea of God that is distant from us and not present with us, this transformation of the power of sin and death and our wounds, right, transforming those things leads us to the final question. I know some of you are like, thank God, because kickoff is coming, right? How does how does Jesus save his people from this reality? Right, so if Jesus is the one who will save his people from their sins, how? How will he save them? 
So the Gospel of Matthew, and none of the Gospels for that matter, ever say that Jesus, right, was a payment or a substitution of us for our sins. That wasn't the reason why Jesus died in the Gospels. Jesus dies in the Gospels because the authorities who organized this world conspired and they killed him. Matthew doesn't say, and he will die for our sins. He says he will save us from our sins. And, and we understand, and I can fully understand why we, we read the language of sacrifice into Jesus, because I think Jesus made a tremendous sacrifice for us. But Jesus dies in Matthew because he opposed the way the leaders of his day had organized and created the world. He said, this is crazy. The divide that's happening between the haves and the have-nots and the oppression and the violence and the injustice. Jesus opposed these things, and it was for that reason that he was hung on a cross as an insurrectionist, king of the Jews. This is what Rome does to those who defy its way of organizing the world. And that's what Jesus did. He opposed the order of this world, and that cost him his life. And, and here's the thing. Jesus' death was an act of love and a, a demonstration of the reality of God in the midst of a disordered world. Marcus Borg, in his book, Convictions, talks about salvation, and he says something really beautiful. He says, the root meaning of salvation and being saved are rescue and deliverance, right? That's really what it's about, rescue and deliverance. To be rescued or delivered from a negative condition of life to a new and positive way of life, transformation. It's, they're about this life, not the next. Perhaps the best contemporary synonym, he says, is transformation, to be saved from one way of life to another. There's lots of metaphors for salvation all throughout Scripture. Liberation from bondage, from, sight to, from darkness to, to light, from not being able to see to being able to see, from life to death. And then there's this beautiful like, metaphor of saved from sin. Sin is a power that holds us in bondage, that lies to us, that tells us God can't be around us, that God doesn't like us, that God is so pure and perfect and holy, doesn't want anything to do with us, until somebody pays that price. It's very judicial. It's very transactional. It's not relational. It's not walking in the garden together. It's not that metaphor. So here's the thing. Jesus saved his people from their sin by teaching and modeling radical love and forgiveness. Like, that was the salvation. And showing people, no, you say that this person is being punished by God because of their sins. Well, I'm telling you their sins are forgiven. And people say, oh, well, they're still sick. Well, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. Those are what those stories are all about. The revelation that it's not sin. <laughs> it's not what a person does. It's the lie that we hold on to that we have to constantly separate people out. The lie is that that the lie of sin is that God is distant in your sin and needs you to jump through hoops to get back to love. It was a great distortion of divine love. It's a God that's made in human image, <laughs> not humans made in God image. So to reveal this radical love and forgiveness, the imminence of God, the actual reality of God around us would lead Jesus to the cross. And the cost or the price that was paid to give us sight or freedom would be his life. And the cross would become the central image of Christianity because it is an icon of love that conquers the condemning and controlling power of sin in our lives. It's not that God is distant and can't be in your presence because of your sin. It's the lie that God 
is distant and present, that we believe, that we pull ourselves away from, that, we, that shame takes over. But Jesus reveals and breaks that power. See, the power of sin is that there's a perfect God that demands perfect people. When what Jesus reveals is there's a God that is love, that loves people. So I don't want us to miss this, that Jesus lights the path to peace with God by ending sin's power over our minds. End sin's power over our minds. And it's a very real power, but it's fictitious because God is always present, always calling. Think about all the texts that we have where God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. When you walk through the, this is early history, early stuff. When you walk through the waters, you won't drown. When you walk, I'll be with you. And we just constantly believe and we create God in our image that God is somehow separate. Jesus comes and he dies and eats with sinners, all this stuff. So the power of sin is in our minds. And so this is a transformation that takes place that empowers us to love even to the point of death because we have nothing to fear in death because we know that on the other side of death is pure goodness, pure love, pure God. So sin is a problem. It's a big problem, and it destroys peace on earth. But God's presence with us in the midst of sin calls us to the truth of God's presence in us, able to forgive, to see past, and that's what brings wholeness. So in your everyday normal life, let's get the fill-ins done and get you out of here, okay? Here we go. You got to acknowledge and participate in your part in the wounding. This is what the Bible calls confession. And it's not so that God can somehow get past the invisible barrier that you've put up that God is not powerful enough to break through. It's so that we can enter into the truth of who we are and start seeing the redemption and healing of our world. There's power in confession, right? It breaks the power of sin because we realize when we confess our junk, it's like, oh, I'm still loved. You need somebody in your life that will mirror God back to you. So confess your your wounding, the woundedness. Confess the fears. And then I want to encourage you, don't let the wounds separate you from the healer. <laughs> That's what happens. Like we get wounded or we wound people and we start separating ourselves. The truth is we can't deal with our sins. We just can't. The weight of shame and guilt is too big and it just gets transmitted back into our world until there's a savior to break the cycle. And so Jesus reveals that very nature of God as pursuing and loving and healing and restoring, and he died just so we could see how far God would go for love. Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I would add an asterisk to Paul. Am I allowed to do that? I do think that there is one thing that can separate us from God. Me. I'm the only thing that can separate myself from God because I can go hide in my shame. I can go hide in my fear because I've believed a lie that sin separates me from God. Or I can accept what is revealed in Jesus that sin has no power over me and death has no power over me. And the cross is beautiful, but it's not because there's this cosmic deity out there who demands blood. It's because there is a reality so big, so unimaginable that we are making words to try and describe that loves and sustains and has a vision for this world that is filled with peace and enough for everybody. And one of the ways that we continually remind ourselves how to be in the presence of the healer is by participating in the body of Christ, what we're doing right now. 
And so I want to encourage you. That's why this is important, because it's a reminder that we're all here. We all participate in the wounding, but that doesn't separate us from God. And when we come together and we love one another, we bring to life the love of God. It's why grace and mercy have to be the foundation of healthy Christian community, why everyone has to be included, regardless of what they believe or don't believe, because that's love. And that's the beauty of it. That's the power of communion. And here's what happens. As we live into this reality, as we think about and understand, I think, sin in a healthier way, it produces a healthier understanding of God. And what happens is when we find freedom from sin's power and deception, boldness comes into our lives. And not a boldness to tell people that they're going to hell, not a boldness to tell people they need to go to our church, not a boldness to leave some track in a bathroom by a urinal, which happened to me the other day. I was like, give me a break. I just went and threw that thing away. I said, I don't, I got enough problems in my life with this out there. It's a boldness to love God and love others with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it produces. And Hebrews hints at it. Hebrews chapter 4 says, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are yet without sin. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus never fell for the deception of separation, but experienced the pain of it. Never fell for the lie that he could do anything that would separate him from his father. Never fell from the lie that it never fell for it. But on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what we're learning there is that Jesus felt the weight of that feeling that we feel in our separation, even though he never fell for the lie. And I believe this deep understanding is behind what Scripture says, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And I love Jesus even more for that. I love Jesus more now than I ever have because I don't believe Jesus went to the cross because God demanded it, because God somehow had this cosmic record of wrong that the only way that we would be made right is if I was accepted Jesus and said the magic prayer, but that God loved the world so much that God gave God's Son to whatever would happen in our sin to demonstrate love, even to death on a cross. So, as they say, we can approach the throne with boldness, such a beautiful metaphor, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So what is it that God's inviting you into today? I know for some of us, this is a different way of thinking about grace and sin and the cross, but I believe in my heart of hearts, that it has to captivate us and capture us if we're going to have healthy spirituality and a healthy understanding of God. So pull out that connect card real quick. On the back are some next steps you might want to think about. I hope that you sense God is inviting you to live a life of confession and honesty about your wounds and the wounds that you cause, knowing that you're perfectly loved. That's a life of faith. That's, I think, what you maybe have heard in the past is like giving your life to Jesus or inviting Jesus into your heart, whatever it might be. But there's just this decision that we make to say, I'm going to live a life of confession. I'm going to live in the truth and not the lie of sin, and therefore sin will have no power over me. That's the big one. And I need to be reminded of that invitation every day. 
every day. I hope that you sense God inviting you to invite a friend or a family member to the candlelight service, one of the candlelight services at Christmas, to share it on your social media network to help get the word out. And maybe you, maybe a, an invitation to be a part of the Honest Advent. So as you finish filling out your Connect card and your offering and all that good stuff, your donations today, you can drop those in the baskets or put them in the orange kiosk in just a moment during this final song. And I know we've gone way over today. Please tip the... the the children's ministry team, when you go back there, just cash tips, work well today. Just take a moment as we sing this song, Give Me Love. Well, you're not going to sing it. You're going to listen to it. It's an after Beatles tune. <laughs> and as you, as you hear this song, as you finish out your Connect card, your donation, as you finish up all the digital stuff online. I want you to just think about these lyrics. Pay attention to the lyrics. It says, give me light, give me life. Those are two metaphors for salvation that we have in the Bible, light and life. Give me light, give me life. And then it says this, keep me free from birth. Oh, keep me free from birth. Give me hope. Help me cope with this heavy load. Sin is a heavy load. It's a burden in our lives. It's a lie that is persistent. It is powerful, and we have to be reminded of it weekly, that it has no power in our lives. It's why we do this, to invite others into the freedom, to love. And then it says, I'm just trying to reach, and I'm trying to touch you with heart and soul. That's what we're just trying to do. And the biggest step in it is to recognize that sin can never separate us from God. It's just a construct in our minds. And Jesus reveals that. So finish filling that out. And I'll be back with our blessing. Get you out of here just in time for the second half. All right.